ironically, I, I thought that Golden Gate was ultimately going to be a big physical challenge, but it ended up being a tactical challenge unexpectedly. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Now today we're chalking up for a chat with Jordan Cannon. Jordan is making a big name for himself in the world of big wall ascents and link-ups, such as the Freerider in a day, the Yosemite Triple Crown in a day, and most recently, Golden Gate in a day. Y'all, we're talking about 3,000 feet of El Cap granite in a day. There are only five humans who have freed that route in a day. One of them is Jordan Cannon. Another one's Emily Harrington, who we had in episode one. And it's so cool to hear from Jordan where he struggled on that route compared to where Emily did. It's totally different. And I think you're going to take a lot away from that section of this interview. In addition to being a rock star climber, Jordan's helping to educate multi-pitch climbers and amplify climbing's history through his partnership with the American Alpine Club. And he's also working to make climbing more inclusive for the LGBTQ community. Now, I had the pleasure of climbing with Jordan not too long ago out in Red Rocks, and he's just such a good guy. He's got so much stoke, and he's doing really cool things in the climbing community. I'm so excited for this chat. The official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle is Fizzy Vantage. Fizzy Vantage is the leader in climbing nutrition with more than 45 professional climbers, including today's guest Jordan Cannon, now using their science-backed products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Y'all, I love their products and I definitely give Fizzy Vantage credit for helping me to level up my training and performance over the past year. I start my day with their revolutionary supercharged collagen, and then I'll train hard and refuel with some weapons-grade protein. It is specially designed to support muscle protein synthesis during the critical recovery hours immediately after training and while you sleep. Guys, their products are just second to none, created by climbers for climbers. I cannot say enough about this stuff. Try it out for yourself. You'll see the difference. Hit that link in the show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. This episode is also sponsored by Friction Labs Chalk, which is what top athletes are using and trusting for dependable, long-lasting grip. Y'all, I've been using it for years because I really can feel the difference. It just feels better on my hands. Friction Labs is made with the highest quality ingredients with no fillers, no rosin, no drying agents. And what does that mean? Well, it lasts longer and it keeps your skin healthy. Jordan Cannon's a fan of their super fine unicorn dust, whereas personally, I like their chunky Gorilla Grip, but it's okay. Different strokes for different folks. Friction Labs has a flavor for everyone. They love helping climbers to perform at their best, so just try it risk-free and see for yourself. That is how psyched they are to help you level up. Enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less and climb more with Friction Labs. I'm super proud to say that the struggle is carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Honold Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. And who wouldn't want to do that? Guys, swing on over to honoldfoundation.org and consider setting up a monthly donation like I did. And while you're there, you can learn about the awesome projects they're supporting, such as off-grid solar and workforce development in the Navajo and Hopi nations with their grantee partner, Native Renewables. And lastly, y'all, stick around for a couple minutes after my chat with Jordan to hear my takeaways and also learn how you can score some cool stuff from the show. All right, make sure you have doubles of everything for this awesome chat with Jordan Cannon.
Jordan, welcome to The Struggle. I'm so psyched to have you here, man. Uh, let's set the stage real quick before we dive in. Where are you coming to us from right now? Yeah, I suppose I can disclose that. I'm in Alex Honnold's podcasting closet right now. I have this big old mic here, but he said it was like complicated. Yeah, we're not at that level yet. No. Okay. <laughs> That's We're at climbing bronze. We're not at climbing gold level. That's <laughs> <laughs> a dumb joke. Okay, so now before we get into things, um, I really want to hear about what your relationship is with struggle as a climber. What does that word mean to you? Yeah, I've been thinking about struggle a lot lately in preparation for, for this interview. And struggle is a huge part of life. We all have struggle in one way or another. And so I think at least specifically to climbing, I like the term, the struggle is real. We all have it. And I think the only way to really move for it is to embrace it and figure out how to turn your biggest struggles into your biggest strengths and find out ways to, to work through that adversity and use it to your advantage. Yeah, man, I think we all do struggle, you know, from time to time in our climbing, of course, that's what makes it fun, uh, oftentimes at least. But how do you embrace it personally? I think the best way to embrace struggle is to, yeah, realize that there's essentially no getting rid of it and, yeah, embracing that that process and not necessarily being fixated on eliminating struggle in your life. I, I always like to say, if it wasn't hard, you know what it would be? It'd be easy. And if it was all easy, it wouldn't be as much fun all the time. Well, you're certainly no stranger to it, taking on the massive big wall projects that you've done, especially those big pushes in a day. Um, I want to dive in. Let's get specific here. Let's talk about your training. When have you struggled in your training and what did it teach you? I've basically struggled embracing the idea of training, period, and figuring out its value uh, that it can bring to my own climbing. Because when I started climbing, I wasn't necessarily concerned with performance or or sending. I really tried to pursue a different path outside of what you see a lot in the magazines or in the gyms or in the media. And so I've kind of taken a roundabout way, but inevitably we all have or run into plateaus. And so realizing that in order to, to progress and to keep pushing forward towards the, the bigger goals that I have to embrace training in some in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what that progression looked like. And in your earlier days, were you mostly gravitated towards trad? Yeah, I was definitely more more interested in, in traditional climbing. Right, right. So how did you train for that kind of climbing? My basic approach was just getting in a lot of mileage because there's a lot of emphasis on strength as being the key to climbing better or climbing harder. But climbing is a really complex sport and there's so much more in the movement and the mental aspects and, and the technique as there is to having the strength to apply all those things together. Because I, I think the best way to get good at rock climbing is to go outside and climb rock. And the best way if traditional climbing is mainly crap climbing and multi-pitch climbing, well, you can't really do that in a gym very well. So you have to go outside and, and climb cracks. Yeah, you know, I similarly got started um, climbing trad out in the classic lines at Takeets and Suicide Rocks. I wasn't spending a lot of time in the gym. But at some point in time, you're not going to gain a ton of strength doing that, right? It sounded like you hit a plateau somewhere in the 512 range and you were eyeing these 513, 13 plus routes, these classic lines in the valley at Yosemite. So how did you make that jump? Basically how I made the jump was through, through sport climbing. And I kind of resisted sport climbing and bouldering because I saw myself as a staunch traditionalist and trying to follow the path that 
my heroes had the stone masters in California and people like Peter Croft, for example. And Peter was an interesting example because I saw him as my traditional climbing icon and the crack climbing endurance master. He was who I really idolized. And it wasn't until a few years into my climbing that I learned that Peter lived in Bishop and that sport climbing was the, a huge part of his climbing now. And I eventually met Peter and I actually hired him as a guide for as a graduation present to myself. And we went climbing in the Owens River Gorge in Bishop, which is the first sport climbing area I'd ever went to. And it was really him. Like if somebody was to turn me on to, to sport climbing, it was going to have to have been Peter. So it really worked out perfectly. If him, my trad climbing icon, told me to go sport climbing, of course I was going to do it. And he really changed my perspective and one made me realize that it can be a lot of fun, but more importantly, it could have a lot of value in the kind of climbing I like to do most. First of all, it's incredible that you can just hire Peter Croft to take you out for a day of rock climbing. I feel like that's now going to be uh, on the top of a lot of people's lists of things to do. Um, yeah, that should be something that people know. Any of his guidebooks, he has his personal phone number and email. You can hire him. So, God, I love the rock climbing community. It's Peter Croft, and it's you can just call him up and be like, hey, can you take me out for a day? I know. When I heard that, I was like, seriously, you can do that? Because, yeah, I'm not special for having gotten to climb with Peter. I, I paid him just like anybody else can. But since then, have become legitimate friends, climbing partners. Uh, he's become a mentor to you as well. And the takeaway from that day, was that him saying, hey, Jordan, you got to do some more sport climbing? Or did you just discover that in climbing sport with him during that day? It was basically him saying or encouraging me to do more sport climbing. Yeah. And it was because of that trip and the things we talked about that inspired me to move to Bishop. That's where I, I headed straight to Bishop within 15 minutes of receiving my diploma and then based out of there for the, for the next few years and doing a lot of sport climbing in the gorge. But another thing I learned, you know, not just specifically to sport climbing, was just the value of diversifying and realizing that climbing a lot of, on a lot of different styles, doing a lot of different styles of climbing, um, climbing on a lot of different types of rock um, is ultimately just going to expand your your repertoire. Now, what about when it comes just to straight up training? Are you able to continue training while outside or are you focusing some of your time indoor training exclusively as well? Yeah, I'm fortunate enough in my position to be able to climb outside all the time. That was one thing I was nervous about when starting to look more into training. And I even hired a coach this year, my friend Simon Moore. I was afraid that as whatever trainer I talked to, that they were going to tell me that I had to sit down in one place for a few months and train in the gym all the time, which is what I did not want to do. And thankfully, I'm able to do the majority of the training that I need by climbing outside, but with a specific focus and intention. And so my biggest weaknesses are strength and power. I feel like I'm a pretty natural endurance athlete, and that's catered to a lot of the the like bigger things I've done in climbing so far. And, and also a lot of the climbing I do is very technical and very like skill oriented. Like in, in Yosemite, you learn, you can learn a lot of tricks and you don't have to necessarily have that much strength or power to do what other people might consider hard in Yosemite. All right. So you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit. It sounds like by focusing on training, albeit outside, but what does that look like specifically for you? So out with outside climbing right now, I'm, I'm focusing on steeper bouldering and particularly, yeah, like crimpier problems to develop more, better finger strength for some of the goals that I have currently. And then steep sport climbing as well 
to maintain endurance, but also just to develop the bigger muscle groups. I, I generally have like quite weak and unstable shoulders. And then I'm also bigger than a lot of Yosemite climbers. So I struggle a little bit in the steeper realm just because I'm bigger and taller and heavier than people might think. Um, you are pretty tall. How, how tall are you? I'm six foot, you know, 170 pounds. Maybe you just look, you, you look super tall compared to Mark Hudon, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, everybody looks tall compared to Mark. He's 5'1 <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> that's great. I, I love seeing you guys next to each other. So, okay. So that's, you know, the training that you're doing outside. How about in addition to that, anything that you're doing that's supplemental to the outdoor climbing? Yeah. In addition to that, doing a lot of basic strength exercises, push-ups, pull-ups, dips, that kind of thing. But more recently, just starting to do weighted hangs. Really. You set a goal for that. Is there, I want to do 200% of body weight or does your coach set those goals or are you just trying to make improvements over whatever your stasis currently is? Yeah, I don't have any specific goals with hangs necessarily, other than I guess being consistent. And that's the thing I've learned most with training is looking at it in the long run. Little things done consistently over a long period of time are going to have tremendous impact in my climbing life. And that's kind of been the biggest help is, yeah, maybe not having necessarily any specific training goals. Maybe as I get deeper into it and I see a little bit more nuance, I'll have that. I always have specific climbing goals and then try to work my training to orient towards those goals. Yeah, that, that advice there to wrap up this section on training, um, I think it's just so in, just invaluable for all of us climbing. Again, whatever level you're at, we crave, humans crave for immediate results and gratification. It's just, it's evolutionary psychology, I think. But rock climbing really is that slow build and yeah. that incremental, consistent improvement over time Exactly. I was going to quote Simon. He always says, progression comes in months and years, not days and weeks. All right, now I want to um, shift our focus to nutrition. Where have you struggled with your nutrition, Jordan? Where I've struggled most with nutrition, honestly, is just the simple planning and execution of it. Yeah, because I've made the decision to, to live in my car since college and the pursuit of climbing, which obviously has, it's going to have its limitations with food storage and cooking abilities. What does that look like for you? Like when you're out before, especially before you had a kitchen in your van? Boy, yeah. When I lived in my minivan and didn't have a very good cooking setup, I would just value simplicity over quality. Like for, for example, I was climbing in the, the Virgin River Gorge in Utah last winter. The days are short. It gets really cold. Finished climbing as the sun's going down. So by the time I'm back to my camp spot in the van, it's incredibly cold, dark and windy, and I'm tired. And my motivation for, for cooking or making dinner was very low. And so there were uh, multiple nights last winter where I just ate like a few spoonfuls of peanut butter and went to bed because I just couldn't muster up the energy to cook anything. So obviously that's not good for performance. How does your perspective nutrition change based on your goals? Like my, I focus almost exclusively on sport climbing. Yeah. And so when I'm trying to peak and really dial in like the limit send, I'm hyper-focused on my body composition and my weight and maybe trying yeah. to shave a couple pounds and make sure I'm having enough protein for recovery and that kind of thing. But I imagine that's probably different than if I were trying to log 7,000 vertical feet in 24 hours. So how do you look at those different seasons or goals of climbing? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because honestly, um, as I've gotten more into 
sport climbing, like you just said, for yourself. Um, I've really only been doing it kind of trying to climb at my limit for the past few years. Um, and I'm starting to get more concerned about body composition um, and weight and things like that. Whereas before, when I was just trad climbing and multi-pitch climbing and big wall climbing, I basically didn't really have to think about any of those things because they never affected me in the in the way that you feel how heavy you are when you're hanging upside down on a horizontal roof, not standing on little footholds on a slab on a cap or whatever. And so, yeah, figuring out my relationship to nutrition relative to the style of climbing I'm doing and my goals has, has been a bit of a, a challenge over the past few years, but I'm slowly figuring it out. I believe everybody has a healthy body weight that they perform optimally at and in resisting comparing. I have a hard time comparing myself to Alex. He's, we used to be about the same size and we have very similar climbing styles and obviously he's done a lot of the things that I aspire to do. And so it's easy for me to look at him and just try and do everything that he does, but he's his own person too. And he's just much leaner than I am. And I'm just not. So I can't, I have, sometimes have to take what he says with a grain of salt and not get too caught up in comparison. I think that's incredibly important there. And I just want to underline that like in a double Sharpie, there's a common pitfall that I think a lot of climbers run into, which is to find somebody that's climbing at a level that they want to be climbing at and that are maybe similar in their age or build and say, if I do what that person's doing, I'm going to get to where that person is. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of value in comparison. That's how we see where we are in society, but we're all individuals and you have to do what's best for us and figure that out. All right, Jordan, let's turn our focus towards tactics. And I'd like to focus on your push with Golden Gate in a day, um, your attempt, and then your successful ascent of that route. And maybe first, just tell us a little bit about what Golden Gate in a day even is. Mm -hmm. Golden Gate in a day, the, the goal of free climbing El Cap in a day, routes that typically take people three to five, sometimes seven plus days, boiling all that down into trying to climb free climb a route like that in less than 24 hours is the most inspiring goal and challenge that I've been able to come up with for myself. Big walls are just more than anything else. It really does seem like the tactics of it, the planning tactics of it and finding those efficiencies can be the make or break. Yeah. Cause big wall free climbing, whether you're climbing a route multi-day or in a day, you know, there's so many things outside of your control and there's a lot of different variables that you know can tr contribute to failure success like the hardest pitch on golden gate is 13a and it's definitely not my my limit but trying to free climb golden gate in day in its entirety was at my limit because all the other things that come into play and i think a lot of people forget about that with big wall climbing they'll look at the topo and see oh that's the the hardest pitch is 13a oh the, it must not be that bad just like you can look at a sport route and be like, oh, the hardest move is only V3, but you know, climbing it in its entirety is actually really hard. So you can't oversimplify these big or difficult things. There's a, generally a lot more that comes into play. Yeah, it's that cumulative effect when you're talking about, especially about trying to do something in a day where you have to keep moving, you have to save gas in the tank. Yeah, exactly. We definitely joke about in the big wall climbing world, boiling down a 32 pitch route or whatever, like Golden Gate working it into a sport pitch, basically. 
thinking about the individual pitches as like one bolt on a sport climb. Like Emily Harrington and I, when we were both prepping for each of our individual ascents, we basically climbed the route in two big sections. One day we climbed the bottom half of the route and then another day we wrapped in halfway and climbed the top half of the route. And we were joking that we were like one hanging Golden Gate or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it does help to think about it in that scale sometimes. Let's talk about your first attempt that wasn't successful. It was nearly successful. What was different between that and when you did complete Golden Gate in the day through the tactical lens? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, Generally in big wall climbing tactics is honestly one of my biggest strengths. I'm very good with planning and organizing and laying it all out for a successful ascent and lining things up so that all I really do have to focus on is the climbing itself. Ironically, I, I thought that Golden Gate was ultimately going to be a big physical challenge, but it ended up being a tactical challenge unexpectedly. All of our, my prep days, you know, climbing on the route, it was always cold in the sun. And so never really- What time of year was this? It was October, November of 2020. And I maybe put seven prep days into the route and every single time I was up there, it was like perfect conditions all the way around in the shade and in the sun. And so that's what really caught me by surprise on my first actual attempt coming from the ground is that as soon as the sun hit, it was a completely different world that I was not ready for at all and didn't have a plan to deal with. So you just kept climbing? Yeah. So my first time, yeah, when the sun hit, I didn't really know what to do. I hadn't considered the rock being too hot a possibility. And looking back, it would have been helpful to have had a plan for dealing with the heat. Um, Was Mark Hudon belaying you up this yeah yeah mark was belaying me basically i got about two-thirds up the route to this ledge called tower to the people with two crux pitches left before a relatively easy top out the first one is the golden desert that's right it's the golden desert and then a5 traverse immediately after it one is a, a lie back crack to a few traversing roofs and then the a5 traverse is a 50 foot slightly overhanging powerful like crimpy and slopey horizontal traverse that's quite short but packs a punch so two very different styles but one right after other are quite taxing at the end of a long day and the a5 traverse out of all the crux pitches on golden gate is the hardest one for me and it's also the last one so that made it a little bit more challenging as we've talked about now that bouldering and sport climbing and power and strength aren't my my strong suit so yeah (laughs) yeah especially after 18 hours and a couple thousand feet of climbing already right exactly it really forced me to dig deep so on my first attempt we get to the tower of the people and it's really hot and i'm looking at the golden desert and i'm like we're here it's hot i guess we just have to try so yeah i tried and basically just got frustrated because normally the the golden desert pitch isn't that hard for me but i was just falling all over it rapid fire and i was i'd lower down and pull the rope and try again and and fall again and so basically i just kept trying until i realized this is not happening i'm wasting energy i'm getting frustrated it's just I, i can't climb it when it's this hot so that basically just meant we had to just sit on a ledge in the baking sun doing nothing for four so you had no shade and and you were on a ledge. You were, this wasn't like a, you weren't hanging in your harness situation. No, yeah, we wrapped back down to this nice little ledge. And yeah, we tried to make shade as best we could with hanging our shirts and jackets and things. And yeah, eating whatever food and water we had left. But but you hadn't not, planned for that. We hadn't planned for that. Considering the amount of energy I spent not doing it in the sun, put me at the A5 Traverse, the last hard pitch with much less energy to spare. 
and it was in the dark at that time so i had never climbed that pitch by a headlamp before which added another level of difficulty and so i gave a half-hearted attempt but not very close to to doing it and just being completely empty hmm. and had some friends who knew i was up there even watching from the meadow and could hear them like shouting support getting texts on my phone being like dig deep give everything all the cliche kind of <laughs> sayings and me thinking to myself like there's literally nothing left in the tank like i already gave it all that i had and so yeah we pulled the plug at that point and i was a little disappointed because i had built it up in my mind and that was my second mistake was laying it all out on the field as they say on that one attempt and not necessarily setting myself up for a second attempt Oh man, that must have just been so hard to be so, so close to completing that massive goal of yours, the the last hard pitch, as you said, and then having to pull the plug. So when you looked back, when you were able to kind of decompress and, and look back at that, what did you learn? So looking back on on that, like what I could have changed tactically was having a plan if the sun ended up making the climbing too hot and being willing to wait until the shade, even if that meant not doing anything for hours. And then Two, knowing that you can always go back and try again and that it might be best to pull the plug early to conserve your energy if it's just not happening, if the day you planned isn't the day for whatever reason. And yeah, saving your energy for another attempt. And basically not going to the death (laughs) because me going to the death meant that one, it put me at risk of injury. I tweaked my right shoulder going as hard as I could on the A5 Traverse, which I'm still dealing with this to this day. But then also it made it harder to recover. Yeah, that's important if tactically you had planned multiple attempts, essentially backups. It it not only could physically protect yourself, but also I would think mentally it would probably relieve that pressure that you would put on yourself, that fear of yes. failing pressure that, that may start to sneak in if you think this is my only attempt this season on this, right? Exactly. And I learned that from Alex. We call him no big deal because he, he just has that kind of attitude. And he was the one that really made me realize, dude, it doesn't have to be this big thing. He's like, Golden Gate is not the hardest thing you're going to do. And even if you don't do it this time, you can always go back and do it again. And it's really a hindrance to build it up to be this big thing in our mind because it puts pressure on us. So that's ultimately what you did, and that's incredible advice. It took you a couple of weeks, of course, you had to recover. That's a a marathon that you were running on the side of that mountain. But when you did get to reflect on the tactical missteps of the first go, what did you change and what was the impact? Yeah, so on my second attempt, uh, the things that I brought in that I learned from my first attempt was to be prepared to hang out in the sun and wait for the shade at the end of the day if it's too hot. But it also encouraged me to wrap in and work on the Golden Desert and the A5 a little bit more just to have them dialed so that I could basically climb them in whatever condition. Having the pitches a little bit more dialed with beta and ticking crucial holds and really knowing my sequence because actually before my attempt I had only climbed on those pitches twice or once I'm sorry the day I was up there with Emily and I let you know intuitively I climbed the golden desert first try and then I fell at the end of the a5 and did it second try and was just like oh that all feels pretty good you have to be more prepared when knowing that you're going to get there tired and not have much margin for error and then the last thing I took going into my second attempt was from Emily bringing knee pads for the A5 and she even left her duct tape up there for me which was kind of nice that 
that made me feel inspired. And then she left her portal edge for me up there as well, so I could rest at the anchor. So that's what I brought in to the second attempt. It was really hot in the sun, but I had a plan. That's awesome. Dude, congratulations. That is just like the most mind boggling accomplishment like I could <laughs> ever even imagine. Two 13 A's after doing, you know, what, 29, 30 other pitches leading up to yeah. it. How did that feel when you got to the top of that thing? Yeah, th uh, thanks. It felt really great. It's the biggest thing I've, I've done in my own climbing. And that route has been in, in my life for the past few years. And so it was really powerful to have finished that pitch and, you know, reflect on where I was when I first tried that route and where I was now and all of the struggle and adversity and learning and partnership and all, all the things that had happened since then and see it come full circle and culminate in a way that I couldn't have imagined or, or dreamed up was really special. Oh man, it's just incredible. So inspiring. So, okay, well, one last question here before we move on to the next section, and that's, it's still tactics here because I had heard that on that successful push, you had found some time to watch TV while on the side of this massive cliff of granite. So tell me about that. I think it was the office. Is that right? Yeah. On my second attempt, you know, I was prepared to wait out the sun, you know, for six hours, really. So I came prepared with my iPhone downloaded with Netflix so that we could stream, uh, stream the office while we were up there for a number of hours, which was really entertaining for one, but helpful and kind of just like making the experience seem a little bit more relaxed. So if anybody listening to the office hears this, I hope they appreciate, uh, appreciate the role that they played in my ascent. It was quite, quite pivotal. Do you think we could get somebody, I mean, who, who would it be? Do you think you could get Steve Carell out on a big wall? Well, getting one of the members of the office on the on a portal edge on a big wall is a big ask but if any of them are interested in climbing i would gladly go out with any of them just to hang out and exchange stories all right i love it well look this is what the internet is for let's make it happen people if anyone from the office is listening jordan wants to take you out on a big wall give me a call and we'll put you in touch Let's talk about mental game now, Jordan. Where have you struggled and how do you think of mental game just in general? I'm glad you brought up mental game because I think that's an often overlooked thing. A lot of people focus on strength training. You also need to train technique and the skill aspect of climbing. And then the mental game, I like to think about climbing as equal parts or three parts, mental, physical, and technical. Early on in climbing, I saw mental strength as one of my biggest strengths. As I was doing a lot of traditional climbing, I, I felt like I was good at managing fear and, you know, trusting the equipment and trusting myself and my own ability. But then as I've transitioned into, you know, styles of climbing that I'm not as naturally good at, I've struggled a lot with confidence, which is probably the most common thing that people, aside from dealing with maybe fear of falling or fear of failure, struggling with like internal self-confidence and you know the negative voice inside our heads that's probably been my my biggest struggle as of late well yeah i think self-confidence can just be a huge factor for a lot of us as climbers and you know for you i wonder um it was about a year ago where you came out publicly as gay and how much do you think your sexual identity was wrapped up in that self-confidence for you just as a climber or as a person well what I first struggled with and uh, what made it so hard for me to like accept my sexual identity was because I felt like to, in order to accept that I was gay meant also accepting that I was less of a man than 
anyone else. Hmm. And that greatly affected my uh, my self-confidence. As your confidence grew as a climber, did that then begin to give you confidence in your thought process about coming out publicly? Yes, definitely. Building confidence in one aspect of climbing gave me confidence to explore others that also translated to my life. You know, I've learned a lot of valuable lessons from climbing that I've applied to almost every aspect uh, of my life at this point. I don't have the amount of shame or fear or anxiety or whatever associated with my sexual identity, which I used to think was a, a big deal or a large part of who I am. Because if you're a straight person in the world, people just assume it. You don't have to announce anything. But in order to be seen authentically and to be true to yourself, you do have to make some sort of announcement. Otherwise, people are just going to assume or treat you differently. So I think it was important for me first to come out to myself and accept myself for who I am. That was ultimately the biggest struggle. As soon as I was able to accept myself, it was easier to open up to my friends. And then, you know, stepping off of that, ultimately opening up to the climbing community as a whole. It was a, a, a big process. So your decision to come out then, it wasn't just um, for, for personal reasons, right? With self-confidence, it sounds like you were also thinking about the climbing community and maybe the, the broader community as a whole. That was honestly a big contributing factor to my decision to come out publicly in the climbing world was this whole time I've been thinking like, what can I do climbing wise that will contribute to the sport or the community? When eventually I, a big light in my head went off, I was like, man, maybe it's not that at all. Maybe me coming out is what's going to, you know, have the biggest impact. Embracing like your own personal struggle and your own personal challenges and not seeing it as a weakness, but seeing it as your biggest strength and figuring out how you can turn that um, into positive for yourself, but also but also for other people. So what was the impact of that announcement when you made it? At first, you know, I was like really just coming out for myself, but through a lot of encouragement from friends, I've gotten involved, like my friend Patrick, who's my, actually my mentee through the, the SCARPA mentorship initiative program that they're running this year. Patrick runs a, a guiding company out of Bend, Oregon called Out in the Wild, which is basically guiding and educational programs to the LGBTQ community. And so mm -hmm. he's trying to create a space and resources for people from that community to get into climbing and to be confident um, in themselves and to step into the climbing world with confidence. So it sounds like there's two organizations at play here. Um, one is SCARPA and the other is Out in the Wild. Is that right? Yeah, SCARPA this year launched the SCARPA Athlete Mentorship Initiative, which they're calling the SAMI program, which is leveraging the members of their uh, global athlete team as mentors to the greater community. Okay, I got you. So then within that program, you got paired as a mentor with Patrick at Out in the Wild. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so working with Patrick is is very diverse. I work with him with his own personal climbing goals, but... Then I also work with him in the professional sense with his business and helping him make, help him plan events or clinics or help him make partnerships in the outdoor industry by, you know, connecting him with brands that he might want to work with or people to support. And then, yeah, we kind of work with each other personally as friends, just offering support in that way. So yeah, there's a, a personal side, a climbing side and a business side. Well, that's really fantastic. And you all can learn more about the SCARPA program as well as Out in the Wild 
uh, on our social media. So check that out. And, you know, another thing I want to talk with you about, uh, Jordan, is your work with the American Alpine Club and kind of um, being this Rosetta Stone, linking generations of climbers. You're the keynote speaker at the AAC event with Mark Hudon. And you seem to really be psyched about the history of climbing, especially climbing in the valley. And I'd love to know where that's come from. Yeah, I don't know. I've always liked history. It just makes it makes it feel a little bit more meaningful and makes climbing bigger than just the activity. Climbing is this does have like this deep history and this rich culture and this awesome community and lifestyle. And with the American Alpine Club, you've given clinics all over the country and you've talked to thousands of climbers. Why do you think it is important for people to know the history of climbing? It gives you a ton of respect in it and it can yeah, help you understand your your place in, in climbing now. And I think we as climbers are in a really unique situation because climbing isn't that old and a lot of the, the big giants in climbing are still out there doing it and they are easily accessible being at the same crags and areas that a lot of us climb at and being able to learn from them is not an opportunity that should be overlooked. I do love that about the climbing community. There doesn't seem to be this big wall or this big gate between the giants of the past that you've become friends with and climbing partners with and also the giants of the present of which you are one and you're in the community of them and you're out doing these clinics for the AAC, which gives you an opportunity to take all that you've learned, all that you've absorbed, all that you've earned on your own through your hard work and your natural talent and then pass it on to climbers like myself that are just weekend warriors but want to learn and are thirsty to learn more. Yeah, I really like the American Alpine Club for the work that they do in creating these community events and just sharing our stoke and excitement for climbing, but also creating an educational space for people to expand their skill set and become more self-reliant, competent climbers out in the world because that just makes our climbing community stronger. So, so yeah, my tour with the American Alpine Club was half part educational, teaching clinics, but then half part inspirational maybe in the sense that I was showing my my film, Free as Can Be with Mark, which also opens the door to the historical side of climbing and showcasing an older climber and their history and the impact that they've had on the sport and shedding light on that. So I had an opportunity to watch Free as Can Be on uh, Vimeo. I bought it. It's well worth the spend. Super inspiring story. And it parallels, Jordan, your story and Mark's stories of working on the free rider. Tell us a little bit about that for a second. Yeah, Free as Can Be is just basically about my partnership with Mark and our collective goal to uh, climb the free rider on our cap. Me trying to climb the free rider in a day and Mark trying to climb it in however many days it would take. But uh, the more important thing there, I think, is bringing Mark's story full circle for himself. I saw Mark as this older climber who, you know, before I was even born, had done big things in climbing that brought climbing to the place where it is now. And it's definitely influenced my path within it. And so the fact that he was still out there climbing and pursuing these big goals, I saw it as a way for me to not only climb with a hero and legend of mine, but also give back to him in a way that he had given to me without him really even knowing it. Both of your personalities and your passion came through. There's a shot at the end that brought tears to my eyes where he's 
he's sitting at the top and then it it cuts to a photo of him from 30 years earlier sitting basically in that same exact location and it's just it's a beautiful story and mark's just such a character your friendship and your partnership is just something that's so unique thank you for sharing that with us in the film everybody should see the film tell me about what you and mark are doing for the big uh, american alpine club benefit yeah the american alpine club is a nonprofit, and so First and foremost, this is a big fundraising event for them. This is where they get a lot of their money to fund scholarships and grants and run events throughout the year. And Mark and I are going to be the the keynote speakers we're going to present together. And a big reason for, for us doing that is because they're trying to cater towards the older generation of climbing, but also the new generation and find a way to, to tie the two Uh, together a little bit more than it currently is. That's just awesome that you guys are doing that. Thank you for doing it. I love the AAC. I've been a member for many, many years. I haven't had to use the rescue insurance yet and hopefully never will, but um, thank you for raising funds and awareness for that awesome organization. And with that, I think we'll wrap up this incredible interview, buddy. Thank you so much for taking the time for opening up and just sharing your struggles, your breakthroughs and everything that you've learned And I just can't wait to see what you do next. Please keep us posted. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. I'm psyched to see what we can all learn from other people's struggles as well. Ah, what an inspiring conversation and just what a great guy Jordan is. I am so excited to see how he continues to achieve his climbing goals and just do great things for the community with his advocacy work. What did you all think of the interview? Let us know. You can find Jordan at CanonJTC. Me, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and the show, at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, my personal big takeaways from the chat are just how important it is to log real mileage on actual routes, since climbing is just such a skill-based sport. I mean, I like to geek out on training, but Jordan proves that climbing outside can be training if you have the right mindset. And, of course, then you get the added benefit of developing technique alongside strength, and that is awesome. And I'm also really psyched to dive more into climbing history and even connect with some of the titans whose shoulders we are all standing on right now. I mean, most of them are still around, they're still active, and as Jordan has shown us, totally accessible. I think a day out at Bishop with Peter Croft is in my future. Shout out to FizzyVantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle, as well as Jordan Cannon. If you all want to level up your training and performance like we do, their products are developed by climbers for climbers, and they are the best, so check it out. You can find it at select gyms or on FizzyVantage.com. Just hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. Also, be sure to check out Friction Labs, y'all. It's what top athletes are using and trusting for dependable, long-lasting grip. Jordan's favorite chalk is the superfine unicorn dust, and if it's good enough for him, you know it is good enough for the rest of us. Pop over to FrictionLabs.com and use code STRUGGLE20 for 20% off your first order. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Now, if you want to support the show and the climbers who are making it, we're working our butts off. So pop over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and see if you could support. We've got some really cool swag over there for you too. So check it out, patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. We'd really love your help so we can keep making more and more of these amazing episodes. If you'd like a free sticker, that's easy. Just rate and review the show. Pop over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen, 
give us a nice rating and review and then post it online tag the struggle climbing show on instagram so we can find you and we will mail you a sticker slap it on your stick clip your nalgene your forehead or wherever you put stickers so that the world knows that you love the struggle and the struggle loves you all right let's climb hard and do good things in the world <laughs>